format is a closed step meeting. It uh, says here it's been um, appendix, appendixes or whatever it is. It says to read in sequence from the 12 and 12 or big book and open for discussion. So um, I'm going to read out of both, actually. I know some people don't necessarily like the 12 and 12. I love it. Some of it. Some of it I don't understand, which was much like the big book when I first opened it. Um, you know, I'm going to have this commitment for about 12 weeks, thereabouts. I'm going to try to stick with the first step for the first two weeks because there's other steps down the road that uh, we have to cover both of them in one week, like six and seven and eight and nine are really kind of joined together as far as I was taught and the way I work. Um, let's start out, you know, um, forward to the first edition of the big book. The reason I stick to the big book because of the steps is because it's pretty clear it states in here a couple different times, and this is the first one. It says, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. You know, and um, I don't know. The more meetings I go to, the more I realize a lot of people have never read the book. So it's good to do it in this kind of sitting for me. Uh, let's start out with the doctor's opinion. I'm not going to read entire chapters. Uh, it's just um, it gets redundant at time. I'm not going to spend too much time talking to myself. I like to I like to get group activity for myself. I like to hear other people's experience as well. But um. You know, the first step says that we admit we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives become unmanageable, you know, and it was pointed out to me pretty recently, actually, that there's no and in there. It's a dash, you know, it's, you know, it's a two-part thing to admit I'm powerless over alcohol and to admit that my life is unmanageable. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of different things in the rooms and, you know, my experience of taking people through the steps, that second part could mean just about anything. You know, it comes down to certain, certain things and... The way my sponsor taught me is it's managing the decision to stop. You know, I can't manage that decision. I can't I can't manage my own life no matter what's going on. You know, I've sponsored guys that are next to homeless, and I've also sponsored guys that, that work, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, pay their bills, and, you know, and do pretty good, you know, but uh, they just can't stay stopped, you know, and, and I believe that's why we're here, to learn how to stay stopped, you know, throughout my... Uh, Throughout my, my drinking, and I've done a lot of other things, you know, if you guys are still getting hung up on words, uh, I don't know what to tell you, maybe you're not done yet, but uh, I can substitute words easily, you know, and um, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and it worked basically for everything, so, you know, um, for myself, it, uh, you know, I, I, I've tried stopping many times, you know, and I've been able to a few different times actually stop, you know, and... and you know, it just didn't last. You know, some sometime down the road, something just wasn't going my way. And, uh, you know, I picked up. Or things or everything was going my way, and I picked up. Either way, it was just I found some reason to, to pick up again. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the biggest problems is that, uh, you know, that we can't stay stopped. Um, another reason I'm going to stick with that, the first step for a couple for at least two uh, two meetings is because I, I I think it's important, especially a lot of the stuff that's in the big book about uh, about what it is. What is you know what what is an alcoholic? Why you know why am I an alcoholic? Why do I believe that I'm an alcoholic? And I believe it's for two different reasons. One is when I drink alcohol, when I put it in my body, you know something happens where I want to drink more. 
You know, it's an allergic reaction, as it talks about in the doctor's opinion, what I'm going to read. You know, and, and something I can relate to. I've been allergic. I, I have a condition called allergic rhinitis or rhinosis or something where I can become allergic to just about anything. If, you know, I smell a flower, I can touch, you know, bread and it'll be a mild allergic reaction and it changes. You know, but one thing I've always been allergic to is poison ivy. You know, I can be like 10 feet away from it and I break out. That's, you know what I mean? That's, you know, and, and that's no big deal because, you know, I... I just don't go near it. I can see it from 10 feet away and I don't go near it, you know, but I have the same allergic reaction, the same type of activity happening in my body when I drink alcohol, yet I can't stay away from it. You know, I don't have an overwhelming obsession to roll in poison ivy. I just don't. So <clears throat> we'll start out here in the, the doctor's opinion. We're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the first part of it. It says here it's uh, about four pages in. I don't know which. I got a third edition, so it's not going to match the fourth. But it's about three pages in, it says, the first paragraph says, We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. You know, um, that's uh, that sums it up really quickly right there, that it never occurs. You know, so if you're one of them people that, you know, it's, it's a simple question, you know, when you drink, can you guarantee how much you're going to drink, you know, every single time, you know, and not just that one or a couple times, you know, there's been plenty of times in my life where I've had just a couple drinks went home, you know, but that one or two times, 20 times, whatever it may be for any individual, if that happens, it says here that that never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Um, these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, the reliance upon things human, the problems pile up on them and they become astoundingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which could interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Um, this is uh, this is my second time around in AA. The first time I came in, uh, I made it uh, about 11 months, 10, 11 months. I'm not really sure. I wasn't counting. It wasn't that important to me then. Um, but some of the things I heard and, and tried to grab a hold of was, you know, the meeting makers make it, you know, a step a year, you know, take your time. Don't rush into anything, you know, and um, I don't know. My experience, my personal experience and my experience watching others is, you know, after a couple months of hanging out at AA without anything changing, you know, the newness wears off. You know, that desperation goes away. That urgency to change, to get better goes away. You know, um, I heard a guy say it once, you know, being a drunk and not drinking you know, not drinking is just better than being a drunk. It just is. You know, it's just when that newness wears off and that uh, that obsession comes back, you know, and it's going to talk about that in this next, <clears throat> next uh, thing I'm going to read. It's at the bottom of that same page. It says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. Unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort 
which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. <clears throat> After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. Um, the restless, irritable, and discontented. You know, they're the things. They're, that is what I felt, you know, a good portion of my life. As far back as I can remember, I just, you know, I, I was never satisfied with myself, was where I was at, what I was doing. I wanted more or something different at all points in times, no matter how good it was going or no matter how bad it was going. You know, that's the discontented, not satisfied. You know, the restless. You know, I couldn't sit still. I couldn't sit in any one place. I couldn't concentrate thoughts. You know, it was, I was just racing. Everything was just, you know, and it took a while, you know, to get that peace of mind back. You know, it took me a little longer than just having, you know, a, a bright white light experience. It took a little time of, of practicing certain things on a daily basis, you know, before I, my mind settled a little bit. You know, my mind still races. You know, the, the major difference is that race is positive. You know, I'm thinking of what I can do for somebody else. I'm thinking of what meeting I'm going to. I'm thinking of good things now. I don't think of, you know, maybe I should throw this rock through the window, you know, or throw a rock at a car, or, you know. There's some of the psychotic things that used to go through my mind that I don't even know why, but sometimes they still do, you know. You know I tell people all the time, if you knew what was going on in my head, you'd probably have me committed. Um, to irritable. Another one, you know. It's able to keep my cool most of the time. I'm not an angry person. It's kind of relaxed, laid back, but I was irritable. You know, I, any one little thing could happen. That's it. Sets me off. You know, times where I just couldn't stand being around anybody. You know, and all these things. You know, taking a couple of drinks, anything else for that matter, would calm it. You know, and make me feel better. Be able to relax a little bit more. Be able to go out into the world. I'd be able. My mind would slow down a little bit. I'll be able to go out and talk to people, hang out, and, you know, it just made me feel better for some reason, and I learned that long, way, way back, you know, that's what kept me going back to that, to that drink, you know, and no matter what happened, my first experience with alcohol, I was a mess, and me and a couple of friends stole a big old jug of wine, drank the whole thing, made asses of ourselves, I got so sick, it was unbelievable, I got grounded for like three weeks, but I did it again, you know. Something, you know, it's, you know, me and Max talk about it, and I've heard other people talk about it, you know, something about us, you know, we just, we don't learn from our mistakes. You know, the bad things that have happened to me because of drinking, I don't learn from. You know, that's why I don't, you know, necessarily hold to the scaring people into, into staying here. You know, war stories and stuff, because, you know, if the consequences of my drinking couldn't keep me here, how's the consequences of somebody else's drinking going to keep me here? You know, and I've heard about DUIs and killing people and, and blood and this and that. And it's just like, uh, you know, that keeps me out of here, you know, because I wasn't that bad. You know, I mean, I, I've gotten in some trouble with the law, you know, but never that bad. You know, and um, so for me, it was, just, it, it was very important. These are the, the little things that I can relate to, you know, that, that discomfort, just that inner feeling of discomfort that a couple of drinks takes care of. You know, the problem is I can't have a couple of drinks. I have a couple, and then I have a couple more, and then a couple more, and then, you know, God knows what's going to happen. Now, there is a solution, though. 
and it starts it starts talking about it early on in the book it says on the other hand and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand once a psychic change has occurred the very same person who seemed doomed who had so many problems he despaired ever solving them suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules um i had my my best experience with the book actually at a big book meeting it was two people were sharing it and uh this is where they started you know they started out in the beginning and went through the whole book and one of the things the lady was was really hitting home on was the must and the rules you know because i heard it you know there's no rules in aa you don't have to do anything it's all suggestions you know and, and it's true you don't have to but if you want sobriety if you want the promises if you want what you know aa offers there is you know if you want to if you expect to get something out of this there are rules there are musts there are things that we have to do you know i didn't just come to a meeting sit here and you know talk about my problems and everything got better you know i came in i, I did things i got a sponsor i did what he told me to do immediately not next week not a you know when i got around to it immediately it was the most important thing to me you know i did not want to go back to where i came from and you know um I don't know that how that happened. That's one of the mysteries to me that I wish I, I wish I had like a, a certain sentence I can say to somebody that can have them experience that feeling of, oh my God, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, because that's what gave me the desperation to do what I had to do. You know, um, bottom of that same page says, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months in some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date, favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests, so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving which is beyond their mental control. You know, and that's just what I was talking about that. For whatever reason, you know, the same thing with me, I, you know, I just didn't feel comfortable with myself, my own skin, you know, I never felt I fit in anywhere, you know, and, and that carried over when I walked into the rooms of AA, you know, because by the grace of God, I walked into the rooms of AA, the, my neighbor at the time was in AA, you know, and he was um, very adamant about the steps in the big book, the first people I met in AA were very adamant about working the steps, having the psychic change, the spiritual awakening, whatever you'd like to call it. And and they were very, very into it. And, um, you know, so for myself, I just didn't fit in. I hadn't worked the steps. Nothing had changed. I was just not drinking. You know, I wanted to. Trust me, I wanted to drink, but I didn't. You know, and I didn't for a, a good period of time before it was just, you know what? I had a choice to make, whether to go to the bar or go to an AA meeting. And the bar just, you know, sounded better. You know, and um, I don't know, it took me a while. It took me until I got back and learned a little bit more about, you know, alcoholism itself and the solution of why I stayed this time and why I didn't last time. You know, um, this book <clears throat> in the next couple chapters really gets into difference between a hard drinker and an alcoholic, which is something that really opened up my eyes to something. And, um, you know, I always wondered, I had friends that I used to drink with, man, that, <clears throat> that, um, 
I don't drink just like me, if not worse, man. I know guy, guys have blacked out every friggin' time they drank. They're a mess, you know, but uh, they're not like that anymore. You know, I always wonder why, that, you know, why not me? Why when these guys got married? Why when they got that good job? Why, you know, when the shit hit the fan? Why were they able to stop? Why, why can't I stop? You know, why do I keep getting in trouble and coming back right back to where I left off? You know, why do I keep picking up the same bottle that burned me two weeks ago? You know, and it talks about it right here. Bottom of page 20. It says, moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we see I have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. You know, and, and that that's it right there. People that drank just like me, they're able to stop. Why? Because they're not, they're just not me. They're not alcoholic like me. You know, they're hard drinkers. You know, in the next paragraph, but what about the real alcoholic? may start out of a moderate drinker may or may not become a continuous hard drinker but at some stage of his drinking career he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink you know and doesn't say anything out in there about drinking every day doesn't say anything about there about waking up shaking in the morning you know it just says very simply you know he might not become a continuous hard drinker but we're just not able to control how much we drink when we drink you know, um, I know for myself, I could answer them questions easily. You know, Ken, I think it's in the beginning of uh, We Agnostics, it's the two questions. Um, it says, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. And it's as simple as that. And the questions that I could have answered when I was probably 17 years old, you know, because there was times that I could not control how much I drank. You know, I didn't want to quit then, so it would have been pointless, but I could have answered that part of the question. You know, I couldn't answer the second part, you know, because I still believed that I could quit on my own, you know, that I could stop drinking on my own. And, um, you know, I believed that for a long time. You know, I believed... I would leave that up until the point where I realized I couldn't stop, you know, and uh, after AA for a while, you know, it was the, the second part of it. The thing that people told me was going to happen to me is that I was going to think that I was all right, you know, and um, I took the suggestion that's in this book that says, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, go out and try some controlled drinking, you know, and that's what I did. And it took me eight months, you know, and, and you know, uh, another court case to get me back to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and um, I swore, you know, I, that was it for me. You know, I did not want to experience that anymore. And I was I was scared, you know, I was truly scared to, to end up like that. I mean, it was true living hell day in and day out for me. And, um, you know, it's it, I don't suggest it to anyone, but you know what I mean? It's something that I had to experience to get to the point that I'm, I was at where I was willing to say, all right, maybe I do have resentments. You know, I can remember I met Doug my first time in AA. He was friends with my first sponsor. 
No, I was supposed to be writing a four step. It was pretty. It was funny because he was one of the. He was probably one of my first resentments in AA. Is uh, they're sitting there and he said something. Uh, my sponsor said something to the fact about the four step resentments, and Doug said, "Yeah, I didn't have any resentments when I got here either. I wasn't mad at anybody." And I was just like, "Yeah, that's me." And he said, "Boy, was I full of shit." And I was just like, "No, not me, you know." And that's just, you know, that's where I was at. You know, I forgave everybody. I wasn't resentful. You know, I forgive people for what they did to me. <coughs> it wasn't until later on I realized that had nothing to do with it. <laughs> that was my major problem is what they did to me is what I thought was wrong. You know, I had to learn that it wasn't them, it was me. And um, I'm going to read a little bit out of 12 and 12, two of the things I really like. And, you know, I know... I don't know, I, you know what the case was when Bill wrote this. I've heard so many different things, but you know, I know he wrote it in the, the 50s, and it was after some experience. You know, and it says the first paragraph says, "Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that. Glass in hand, we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us." You know, and this after 15 years, it's still the same thing. You know, I haven't changed that. You know, I hear about raising the bottom. You know, I don't, you know, I believe we can get people to believe they're alcoholic, but to get people to believe they can't do it on their own, that they don't need the spiritual, you know, awakening, the spiritual experience to quit drinking for good is difficult, you know, and for me anyway, it still is. Bottom, bottom of that same page, it says, we know that little good can come to any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Proved beyond, beyond doubt by immense experience, this is one of, one of the facts of AA life. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is a main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. You know, and um, I've heard it a few times, and I I kind of agree with it that that you know it's the one step you got to work perfectly, the first step. You know, and um, I agree. I got sponsees right now that are struggling. That you know that I did the same thing with them that I did with somebody else, and everything seemed just about the same and for i can't figure out why they can't stop why they can't stay stopped and you know it's that it's that one thing i keep coming to you know i was talking to a guy today i said until you realize that putting that first one in your body isn't going to do any good it's going to do nothing but bad until you accept that you know it's, you're going to keep doing it you know because it's just one of them things you know it's feels like absolute shit he knows you know one will fix that for now and that's all he's looking for is that for now you know and the next day he calls me and everything's worse than it was the day before so it's really he's accomplishing nothing he's just digging the hole and digging the hole and you know it was the same way you know it was exactly the same I didn't care you know, a dear friend of mine that's sick right now you know but I you know I got the utmost respect for it. I've never been able to do that to know just one will fix it one will make me feel better right now or I can go another couple days feeling like this. You know, I've never been able to keep that one. You know, as always, if one will fix it, I'm going to go do it. And tomorrow, I'll start over again, which never can. You know, tomorrow never came. I don't think it ever comes for any alcoholic. 
but the last paragraph or the last two paragraphs of the 12 and 12 talks about the bottom it says why all this insistence that every AA must hit bottom first the answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice the AA program unless they have hit bottom for practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the ad- adoption of attitudes and actions which almost no alcoholic who is still drinking and dream of taking who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm's done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone, med- let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer? No, the a- average alcoholic, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. Under the lash of alcoholism, we are driven to AA, and there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. Then, and only then, do we become as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as the dying can be. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. You know, I know for me, you know, it it was difficult. It was difficult to come to that point where I was willing to work these steps. You know, and that's, you know, it talks about it and how it works. We read it all the time. It talks about it over and over in AA, you know, the, the willing to go to any length. Well, what is any length? Any length is to go through these 12 steps, to do that, to admit our faults, to sit down, to write out the fourth step, to go through all this, you know, and, and to continue to do it. It's another one, you know, because today I still realize, you know, I was told to keep the same amount of willingness you know, as I had the first day. Am I as willing today as I was the first day I walked into these rooms? You know, when I walked in, hands in the air saying, I'm ready. You know, I, I'm just, just, what do you want me to do? You know, I've heard alcoholics are defiant people. That's not the case with me. I was not defiant when I walked back in here. I was sweetly willing to go to any length. I didn't care. I didn't care who was around and what they were doing. You know, I was going to a meeting. I was going to another meeting. I was getting a sponsor. What he told me to do, I did. You know, no questions asked. I picked the biggest, toughest, meanest-looking guy in the room at the time for my sponsor, you know, and he was actually pretty lenient with me. You know, I don't know if I was easy, which I think I was. I've, I've gotten one sponsor, sponsee, that was similar that I can relate to that was just like, all right, let's do it, you know, and did it. No questions, no, well, you know, maybe it's just whatever. Okay, sounds good. Let's do it, and boom. You know, and, and it's difficult. You know, I, <clears throat> I work with guys all the time. You know, it's one of my that's one of my favorite things to do is help others. You know, and I do it because I realize my life depends on it. My sobriety today is based on what I do today. Not what I did yesterday or last week or not what I'm going to do next week. You know, I stop, you know, planning out and telling you guys what I'm going to do. You know, I did that all my life. I'm going to do this. So, you know, I'll do this and I'm going to do that. And I've never met up. You know, I just, you know, and it just digs myself in a hole and it makes me feel like crap. You know, I found through my own experience and just basic new experiences with the book and new experiences with my own sobriety and with and with God. You know, I didn't, can't say I didn't believe in God when I walked into these rooms, but I didn't think he wanted anything to do with me. You know, I didn't even know what or how. I, I went to church when I was a kid and that's where it ends. You know, my mom prays, she told me to pray. You know, when something was going bad, you know, when somebody died, it was, you know, they're with God now. And I was like, oh, okay, sounds good. You know, let me get a drink. 
<laughs> you know, and I walked in and it was just, I started to look at my life, you know, sober, my head clearing up, started to look at my life and realizing that I knew that there was somebody there. I've always known my whole life that there was, dude, I wasn't alone. It wasn't just me in them bathrooms. It wasn't just me, you know, in them dark rooms. It, 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 there was somebody, something, somebody else. I did not feel alone, you know, and that's that inner feeling that I got, that guilt, that shame, you know. You know, somebody knew. Somebody saw what I was doing and was ashamed, and I was ashamed of myself and what I had become. You know, and the only thing that would take that away was a drink. It would fix that temporarily. You know, and it would always come back, and the only thing that would fix it was another drink, you know. And, um, you know, I finally wanted to stop, you know, and, and couldn't stand doing it anymore. I, I found that I couldn't. You know, and that's, I, I, I had my first experience after I'd been in AA. I'd been through the steps, and I honestly was able to look back over my life honestly, you know, and look at all the times that I really, really wanted to stop and couldn't, you know, and realize the true meaning of powerless, you know, that, that it's not up to me, you know, that I have lost that, you know. Um, last thing I'll read out of the book, you know, and it's, it's what it is for me. It's that powerlessness. I think it's 34. Um pretty good and I don't have everything memorized but I know that uh, a good portion of the book oh never mind 24 it's in italicies like somebody told me that means it's important I don't know I know it's different than the rest of the words so. it says the fact is that most alcoholics for reason yet obscure have lost the power of choice and drink our so called willpower becomes practically non-existent we are unable at certain times, at certain times, to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week, even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. You know, and um, I don't know, I wasn't a, I'm not a Rhodes Scholar or anything, but I, it didn't take me to get to AA before I learned that if I don't pick up the first drink, I won't get drunk. I, I realized that, uh, you know, I appreciate the wisdom, but I... That was common sense to me. You know, my problem was pick, not picking up that first one. Stay and stop for a period of time. You know, and getting, you know, coming to AA, I, I tell you what, ruined a lot of my drinking. You know, because I heard the promises. I had a, a dear friend of mine that I grew up with who's got about 18 months more sober than me. You know, and his life had made a complete turnaround, you know, and, and was going great. You know, he came to AA, he got hooked up with the right people, he got sober, he got happy, and he began to put a life together, you know, and, and I was resentful and jealous at him for years for it, for a year and a half, you know, because I saw it. I saw what could happen by coming here, you know, and I wasn't here and I wasn't doing it, and my life just continued to be crappy and get worse, you know, and um, he only talked about, you know, one basic thing, that's the solution. 12 steps you know when i got sober that's all he talked to me about every time i talked to him you know, i wanted to talk about this that the other thing it was what step are you on you got a sponsor okay what step are you on where are you at you done you know you done with your fifth step did you do your fourth step yet what step are you on you know once i threw how many sponsors you got you working with guys yet you chairing meetings yet you doing this yet you know and he held me accountable i'm grateful for that you know he might have saved my life you know because i'm lazy and i don't like to do anything you know, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to, I, I don't want to do anything 95% of the time. You know, I won't lie. I won't, you know, I, 
I want to help newcomers. I want to help others. But that day, that one day that the guy calls me, I said, we got to meet at four, and he calls me at three, and he wants to do it. And I, you know, most people don't call, so I, I look forward to that. Not calling, I can go fishing, I watch a game, you know. But when they call, it's like, oh, man, you know, I got to take this guy through the steps. He's not even going to stay sober. But I do it. You know, and I found my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I'm sober today because I did the things I did not want to do. You know, I didn't come here and say, oh, wow, that looks like fun. I didn't want to do it. You know, I stay here, you know, because my life depends on it. You know, because I do not want to die. You know, I do not think I can linger around the outskirts of Alcoholics Anonymous, not doing anything and stay sober. I don't think I can do it. I know others can. I've heard them talk about it. You know, I know people that come into this very room with 15, 16 years and still haven't worked the steps. And they'll tell you about it. You know, but everything I've read and everything I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that that's not an alcoholic. If you can stay sober without a psychic change or a spiritual awakening through the work of the 12 steps, you're not an alcoholic. You know, and I've heard it time in and time again. You know, and it makes me nervous, you know, because it's been taught to me and it's my experience that without what happened to me through working these steps, through having a change of perception, through looking at things different. I heard Doug mentioning, I think he was talking about what somebody else said is, you know, what is a spiritual awakening? You know, it's looking at something you've looked at before and saying, oh, wow, I've never looked at it like that. You know, and it's that simple. You know, this is Pompano. This is where I came when I came down from New York, this is where I drank, this is where I drugged, this is where I committed crimes. I did all that stuff here. You know, Pompano hasn't changed. You know, I can st- I still go up and down the same streets. Nothing's changed. Some of the same bars are there. You know, I've changed. The way I look at it, it's changed. You know, I'm grateful for what I've learned here and, and, and some of the people that have come and taught, you know, and told me. You know, I, I, I don't obsess over it. I don't want to drink anymore. I don't know why. That part of it I can't explain. It tells me in the book is because I've worked the steps and had a psychic change. I can't really explain that in my own words. Uh, not yet, maybe in a couple more years. But for now, I'm happy with it. You know, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with not wanting to drink anymore. You know, I'm okay with doing what I do on a daily basis. And, you know, I work with people that are extremely active. You know, Kenny will tell you. Me and him... You know, if the requirement of my, if my job required drug tests, me and Kenny would be the only two guys that work there. And that's serious, you know, but does it bother me? Not really. You know, it bothers me that some of the people don't find the rooms because they're going to die. But for the most part, it's like, you know, it's how I was. And people loved and tolerated me. You know, now it's my turn. So with that, I'm going to open up the meeting for discussion. Some of you guys talk some and, uh,
<laughs> I have that effect on everyone. Um, okay, first let me get through with the thank yous because if I don't do this, I always forget and then I'm mad at myself forever. So I would like to thank Rex and David, our chair and co-chair of this wonderful roundup. It's a lot of work. And all of the committee members, thank you so much for all that you do. Um, I, I appreciate it, and I'm sure everyone else does here, too. And my lovely hostess, Penny, who's terrified to be sitting up here. Send her some love. <laughs> and I have a lovely gifts I have in my room. They called me up and asked me what I wanted, and that's what they gave me. It was really cool. What a wonderful idea. That was just great. So, okay, and let's see what else. Oh, I want to thank Roger and the tapers. I wouldn't be here without tapes. Um, I lived on them for years. So, okay, I'm ready now. Hi, my name's Cookie and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and through the grace of God and the 12-step program of recovery from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not found it necessary to take a drink since October 25th, 1983. impresses you, but it impresses the heck out of me. <laughs> okay, um, I'm getting here. Really, I am. Uh, okay, so, um, you know, it was really funny one time I was going to do one of my first talks, and I, I called my sponsor, and I said, oh, I really want to carry the message, and I want to do a good job, and I want to tell them that God is, and, and I want them to know that they never have to drink again, and, and I, you know, it's really, I, I really want to do a good job, and she said, well, Cookie, um, you were at that roundup last year. Do you remember the speakers? And I said, well, I, uh, um, uh, um, was one of them a woman? And she said to me, well, that's about how many people are going to remember you, so don't worry about it. <laughs> so, uh. Then the other thing I always worry about because I've gained a bunch of weight, and so so I'm standing up here and I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to wear? I, you know, I just haven't got anything to wear right now. And then I realized that most of you only see me from about here up. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, I was born a rich white child, and uh, <laughs> and from that, and I love to talk about this part of my story because it's it's very different from a lot of speakers. And because that's different does not make me different. It's just that my lifestyle was different. I was brought up in a family who loved and cared for me. I was told I could accomplish anything I ever wanted to accomplish. Um, I have an older brother and a younger brother, and I was the middle kid, and I was a, a super achiever. I wanted to be the good girl. I wanted to grow up to be just like my mom. My mom's a lady, and I wanted to be a lady just like my mom. And so all of those things you don't hear about a lot, uh, people telling their stories in AA. But the one thing I do know today is that alcoholism is an equal opportunity destroyer, and it doesn't really care where you came from or how much money you have or don't have or if you're black or white or Catholic or Jewish or Buddhist. or If you have the illness of alcoholism like I have the illness of alcoholism, you get to die of the same disease or you get to recover together with us. So we're here tonight, and this is our night, and I'm so glad you are here. Makes my day. So, okay, um, I was... Started out, and I remembered one time I was talking to my girlfriend, and we had just, we were both about, oh, I don't know, about two years sober, and we, were, we went back and we decided we'd talk about, or we'd think about, when was the first time that ever, that ever, that alcohol affected you? You know, I mean, not necessarily when you drank, but when did alcohol affect you? You know, and I had to think about it for a while, and, you know, I was thinking about it, and I'm, 
And then all of a sudden I remembered. I remembered when I was young, my parents, uh, my parents used to have these wonderful parties and they were like balls and, uh, and people would come dressed up and that's when people actually used to all get dressed up to go to a party. And, uh, and so I, I, they would come dressed up and they would be beautiful and the men would come in tuxedos and the women would come in long dresses and they would just all look so sophisticated and I had to go around and curtsy and meet every one of them. And, and I passed hors d'oeuvres and curtsied and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I just watched all of it and it going on for, you know, weeks beforehand to make the house look right. And it was just all that kind of exciting atmosphere around the house. And, um, and, and so I was there that night and I saw everybody coming, start to come in. And my mom had this gorgeous dress and I had my little goofy outfit on. And <laughs> I've never been much of a girly girl. So I kind of think some of those are like goofy outfits because my mother liked to dress me up like a real girly girl and I usually made a big mess out of it in no time. But okay, so this lady came in and she was, you know how some people are just more than other people? They're just more, you know? And she came in and she was more. She walked in the door and she had on this blue gown and it started up here and it was blue sequins and it started light blue and it was only on one shoulder. Woo, racy. And, and it's up here and went down and down and down and down and it was a form-fitting outfit and she had a form to fit. And, and it went down and down and down and down and it pooled around the bottom of her feet in this blue pool. And she was just gorgeous. You know, and she had this great big huge hairdo. I still suffer from that. And... <clears throat> Higher the hair, the closer you are to God. <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> so I uh, and I watched her, you know, and she and she had these little blue shoes and a little blue bag that hung off of her thing. And she had this gorgeous husband. He was in a tuxedo. He was so handsome. I have always been a fool for men in tuxedos. I have got to quit marrying them. Glad there are none here. I'm single again. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I couldn't. And everybody watched them. And she had she had this big long cigarette holder. And on the end of the cigarette, everybody smoked back then. And on the end of the cigarette holder, she had little blue rhinestones. They matched her dress. I was so impressed. You know. And the butler came by and asked her if she'd like to have anything to drink. And she said. I'll have a martini. Just like that, I'll have a martini. I've been practicing it for years. I'm not much of a girly girl. Okay, so the butler came back, and here was a V-shaped martini glass, and he got her one with little blue bulbs on the bottom. Oh, my. How impressive. And so she stood there drinking her drink with her cigarette, and she'd throw her head back and go, ha, 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 and all the men were around her. And I wanted what she had. <laughs> Attention. <laughs> That's why I love it. I live in a suburb called Edina. And Edina stands for every day I need attention. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, she was just gorgeous, and she had her martini and her drink, and, and you know everybody was milling around, and her husband was talking to other people, and people. And then my mother dismissed me for the evening. I had to go say good night to everybody, and uh, so I went around and said good night to everybody, and I went upstairs and sort of hid so I could watch everybody down there. And uh, being the good budding alcoholic that I was, I was fascinated by this. And so uh, it was a lot later, and pretty soon she was standing there and she was talking to some people, and now her cigarette's kind of going over here. And her martini's kind of going over here. And even her hair sort of. 
And, uh, <laughs> and her husband was standing there, and all of a sudden, he just, she, he just swooped her up and took her out the door. And I thought, oh, isn't that romantic? I didn't know she'd passed out. So I heard my father talking to my mother the next day. And he said, you know, dear, Mrs. Stones was like quite a nice, lovely lady. But when she drinks too much, she becomes a bit of a floozy. I didn't know what a floozy was. It was about a month later, my father asked me what I want to be when I grew up. I said a floozy. I'm here to tell you I achieved my goal. <laughs> oh, bad joke on cookie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, add, inst add alcohol instant floozy. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, so when I turned 13, my girlfriend and I got together and her parents were out of town for the weekend. And I decided to make my, well, she, the, we got into, we broke into the liquor cabinet, the first of my illustrious career. And, um, we broke into the liquor cabinet, and I had gone out and I had purloined a cigarette holder. My sponsor pointed out to me in my fifth step that purloined is a fancy word for theft, cookie. Rats. So, so I had found this cigarette holder, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I also had a cigarette that I found shortly before somebody lost it, and, uh, you can imagine how much fun I was to sponsor in the beginning, can't you? <laughs> and, uh, so I decided to make myself a... Oh, you guys have been paying attention. You've heard me before, girl. <laughs> yeah, I decided to make myself a martini. Now, I don't know about you, but I have looked back upon this over the years, and I realized something. Did I think I was an alcoholic before I took a drink? You know, because I started obsessing about this from a moment of that party until the time I could drink that first drink. Isn't that amazing? You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about the fact that we have an obsession of the mind. And I hadn't even introduced alcohol to it yet. So, you know, I, uh, I poured that drink and I knew there was no ice in it because there wasn't any ice in her pretty glass. And so I poured myself a glass full of warm gin. And uh, that's a good starter drink, don't you think? And <laughs> right into the big time. And <laughs> I, uh, I lit my cigarette with my ratty little cigarette holder. And, you know, good starter drink, don't you think? And <laughs> right into the big time. And <laughs> I, uh, I lit my cigarette with my ratty little cigarette holder. And, you know, um, You know, Clancy, I'm, I don't know if you, I'm sure most of you know who Clancy is. He's a speaker. And he talks about, uh, he talks about alcoholism, and he's got a tape called The Disease of Perception. And I've thought about that many times over the years, and when he talks about that disease of perception, he talks about that alcoholics see things differently than other people do, and I, I totally believe that today. And, uh, you know, here I am. I'm sitting there. I'm 13 years old, and I got a blue shirt. Big surprise, right? And uh, my blue jeans, which at that time we were wearing elephant bells. And <laughs> I'm really old. And now they're back. That's how old I am. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I had uh, uh, 
poured myself this glass full of, uh, of gin, and I was going to take this drink. And now before that liquor ever hit my lips, I had turned into that beautiful lady in that blue dress. Before I took the first drink. It was amazing to me, just amazing to me when I look back. It took me a long time to put all this together. But I took that first drink, and, you know, I love the big book because it says something. It says when alcoholics drink, something happens. How about you? Did something happen when you drank? <laughs> it talks about the fact that men and women drink essentially because we like the effect produced by alcohol. The effect is so elusive that after a while we cannot differentiate the true from the false. To us, our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I pick up that drink, I start to drink it, and something happened. And what happened for me is ever since I was a small child, I had something that went on in my head. I was very uh, gifted athletically, and I did a lot of stuff. And, uh, and I wanted to be a winner. I always wanted to be a winner. And here's how I, I would sit when I'd watch people and do things, and my head would say this to me. Now, I don't know if you've ever realized you, your head talks to you. You know, you may not know that you can talk back to it yet. But anyway, so I'm talking, my head is just talking at me. It says things like this. You know, Cookie, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you do, you're never going to be just quite good enough. You're never going to be good enough. You've got to work harder and try harder than everybody else because you're not going to be good enough. You know that you're too tall, too short, too fat, too thin. You know that there's something wrong with you. There's just something wrong with you. You're just not quite good enough. You better work harder. You better try harder. You're just not good enough. This was constant with me, and it kept me going. It kept me, it kept me performing in all my sports. It drove me all the time. And uh, I took that drink of alcohol in a matter of about three and a half minutes. It was gone. And I don't know about you, but I love the fact that it was gone. And that's the effect alcohol had on me. And I'm going to tell you, I was willing to chase that to the gates of insanity and death. That one feeling that first time that I got. You know, but I did then what I do almost every time I drink. I sort of overshot the mark. <laughs> And every time I've had as much alcohol as I want to drink, I drank until I got drunk and passed out and threw up. In any order, whichever you like. And that's what happened that night. And I remember, I remember decorating the bathroom. And, uh, and I, just, I just thought that this was the most wonderful thing in the entire world. And why hadn't I found it before this? Now, I have gone from, in a very about an, three hours of time, from this little girl who wanted to be like her mom and be a lady to someone who's got to figure out how to drink better so they don't throw up. This is not normal. I know it's normal to most of you. <laughs> it's not normal. And, uh, and so I, uh, you know, I remember that so clearly. And the effect alcohol had on me was that I was free. I was free, finally. In a matter of uh, two years, every single one of my sports was gone. I dropped out of high school. I just wanted to drink, thank you very much. Um, I started out drinking, and when I started drinking, I couldn't stop drinking. It was never any different. I was an alcoholic from the get-go. I just had to plan it better and try harder. I was, like I said, I was brought up in a, in a, with very privileged surroundings, and so I had, didn't find it difficult at all to get all the liquor I ever wanted. I just blackmailed the maid. No hobby. And um, so, you know, I was going along, and, and I was doing all this stuff, and, and, uh, and I'm, my life is totally revolving now around alcohol. And I was, uh, I had gone out to California to visit my, uh, my cousin. And when I was out in California, I fell in love. And uh, I'm all of 19 years old, you know, 18 years old. And I fell in love. And I came back, and he came back to my, my, my family, and I was going back out east to meet his family. And he was back in California. He was going to be a marine biologist. And we were going to move to Hawaii and get married. And he was driving back from surfing one day, and the axle broke in his Jeep, and he was thrown from the Jeep, and he was brain dead. From that moment to this moment today, 
I would turn off anything that had anything to do with the motion. Um, that devastated me to such a point that I didn't even know what to do with it. I had never had any bad news in my life. Um, my life and my family, it was always fun. It was always funny. It was always do the fun stuff. And all of a sudden, I didn't know what to do. And, uh, and so I did what I usually did. I drank a lot. And, uh, and I was hanging out with my girlfriend. I was, I was thinking about what I was going to do with my life since I was now a high school dropout. And I decided to go to college. <laughs> Why not? And... <laughs> It's not too hard to do, actually. And so I was um, getting ready to go off east to college. I wanted to go to a broadcasting school. At that time, there were no women in broadcasting. And so I thought, this would be a great position for me. You know, you can rise really fast. It'll be really cool. It'll all be fun. And, uh, and so that's what I did. I, I was getting thin. I was hanging out with my girlfriend, Chris. Uh, every time I wanted to get thin, I'd hang out with Chris. And uh, Chris was about six foot two and weighed seven pounds. And... She was great to hang out with, and she had, she had a lot of hair, blonde hair, and she was one of those really annoying people that could lay out in 90 degree heat in a full set of makeup and never perspire. You know, and she'd lay out in this perfect, and I'm a tomboy, so we'd go out together, and she'd lay in this perfect lawn chair position with a little pink bikini on, and I'm out in a swimming suit, swimming laps, you know, and I come back and look at, look at her, and I take a drink of my beer, and I go back out. And pretty soon I saw this, this XKE drive by, and I'm a car freak, so I see this car drive by and drives by seven times. <laughs> so I think, well, huh, this is interesting. So I figure he's looking at Chris. You know, I'm, I'm looking like a drowned rat. And, and he walks down, and he walks right up to me. He walks into the water. And I said, I just looked at him, and he said, gee, you look refreshing. I said, you want a beer? <laughs> oh, anyway, um, it was about a month and a half later, I decided I was going to marry him. My mom was real happy about that. I think it was the third date, actually. And, uh, and uh, I have always wanted to remind myself of this because it's some of my really clever and wonderful thinking because I'm ever so bright. And I have to remind myself of how bright I am every once in a while just so I can bask in the glow of my Duraflame log. Um, I, I'm standing there. And I'm, I'm thinking about all this, and, and I'm thinking back when I'm thinking about this, and I think, why did I marry him? And uh, I had two reasons. One was he never said anything about my drinking. Guess why? I promised my sponsor I wouldn't take his inventory from the podium. Um, but suffice it to say that he's been in 17 treatment facilities. And uh, the second reason was because he asked. <laughs> you know, the really sad part about that is I married the second one sobriety for the same reason. <laughs> oh, golly. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah. And we started off and we were just, we were quite the couple. We were both tall, dark, and handsome. And, uh, and he, we had, I had an ability and he had an ability to make a great deal of money at that time. And I'd started my own company when I was 20 years old and through the grace of God and this fellowship of this program and a lot of very good luck and a lot of very loving friends. I retired from that business with 35 years, um, just last year. So I started my business then and, uh, I was in a field where there were no women, of course. And cause you know, you know how we are about other women. I don't know about you women out there, but I'm sort of that way about other women. You know, I mean, I don't really want to be around them because most women don't drink like I drink, and they always tend to notice. Like, they see things like, are you having another? 
Haven't you already had two? Yeah, I'm warming up. So, I don't know about you, but I eliminated friends who didn't drink like I drank. They just sort of got pushed to the sides. And so I, uh, we, uh, we started living a very fancy lifestyle. And we had fancy cars and fancy things and everything was fancy. And I hung around with some pretty important people. And I traveled all over the world and I did a lot of fancy stuff. Um, my husband used to travel on the road Mondays through Fridays. And we had a nice little five-bedroom house for the two of us. And, uh, and he was gone. My girlfriend lived upstairs. <laughs> you never knew she lived up there. <laughs> it was great. I-, I loved hanging around with her because she was slowly working her way through an entire football team. It was kind of like, a, you know. A spectator sport <laughs> and uh, and so you know she'd be off with all these football players all the time and, and I go out drinking with her because I just wanted somebody to drink with and go out and have fun and, and I have to give you a picture of what I looked like at that time for some of you they're young enough you may not remember any of this for some or you may have seen it on old movies um, but yeah I had I had two sets of wigs my hair was about out to here and I wore two sets of eyelashes up here and one set down here and and I had uh, I had white go-go boots platform go-go boots that came up over my knee and folded over they were vinyl they were really sexy and then I wore a little I wore a little hot pants everybody remember hot pants I had my little hot pants you know, and, and then, that was when we wore that real light lipstick, you know, and then we had the white and the brown and the white, and we drew the little twiggies under our eyes. I was just gorgeous. And so I would hang out with her, and, and she would be working her way through the team, and, and I'd be watching this, and it was great fun. And I'd hang out with all of them, and, and I kind of made a, I kind of made, I like to sort of lip off a little. I know you find that hard to believe. But I would um, make jokes with these guys and have fun and all kinds of stuff, and and I was a little girl that really lived in the suburbs and had been very sheltered all of her life. I had parents who loved me. I didn't know there were bad things that went on in this world. I really didn't. Um, that was someplace over there. It didn't make any sense to me. And it was a different world then. And so I, uh, I was kind of laughing with these guys. And, and one of the guys was kind of <clears throat> rather slow. And, uh, and I'd tell jokes. And he'd come up and go, hey, I got that cookie. And I just could say things like good in this millennium. And, you know, and I was not nice. And so this is not any to give any kind of an idea or reason for anything it's just this facts that set this thing up and so i came home one night and unbeknownst to me he followed me home and uh um, i was home for about 15 minutes and he came to my door and i said what are you doing here and he got himself in and he ended up raping me now this happened in my own home and uh, i had no system in place to deal with what happened to me none um it was, uh, I was, I was sober for a number of years before I could even talk about this. And it was hard. I blamed myself. Um, I thought if I had just not said that stuff, if I just had not worn that outfit, if I just had not. And I didn't know. I didn't know anything. And I carried that shame with me. And it was to light the rest of my behavior for the rest of my drinking. Um... There's something I want to say to you if that's been your experience, and I do know that for the women in Alcoholics Anonymous, only over 85% of us come in here with some sort of form of abuse. And uh, I don't want to hear you if you're out there and, and this has happened to you. I want you to hear me. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. No matter what happened, 
no matter what you wore, no matter what you said, no matter anything, nobody, absolutely nobody has the right to hurt you, to downgrade you, to rape you, to hit you, or anything else. Nobody has that right. I carried that shame for so long and so hard. Um, it was shortly after the next day I woke up and, and I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with this. I had no idea what to do with this. Um, you know, I was this happy-go-lucky kid that I wasn't even an adult yet, really. And, uh, and I tried to commit suicide because you figure, I figured I was damaged goods. This doesn't happen to good girls. This doesn't happen to girls that live like I live and grow up where I grow up. There's something very wrong with me, and now I know it. And uh, I remember I took all the pills I had at the time. They weren't good enough pills. Uh, obviously, I'm not very good at suicide. So, um, but I woke up, and uh, and I was mad. I was real mad. I was mad at the fact that uh, that I had not killed myself. Um, I thought I was a loser because I couldn't even kill myself right. And the thing about that is when I woke up, my husband was there, and I didn't know what to say to him. And, you know, we're amazing people for alcoholics, and if you're an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic, you might relate to the fact that we know how to rally. And, you know, one of the things I did was I just sat there, and I, I didn't know what to do. But from that moment on until the moment, until I was close to two years sober, I could not look in the mirror and look myself in the eye. I'd look at whatever piece of me I was putting makeup on. I'd look all over like that, but I could never, could never look at myself again. And I didn't know that I had let somebody steal my soul. I didn't know that. Um, so what I decided to do was I'm just going to, I've got to get this together, Cookie. This is ridiculous. You've got to get this together. You've always been good at everything. You can win at everything. Get yourself together. And I rallied. You know, I rallied and I said, this is it. I'm not going to think about that anymore. I have always lived from that day until I did my fifth step with the Scarlett O'Hara theory of living, which is I won't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow when I'm in Terra. So, you know, I just threw things back here and I didn't think about them anymore and I was going to rally and I was going to be that person, you know, that just gets out there and I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to be this right person. And so I, uh, I, uh, I stopped drinking and I stopped smoking and I stopped doing everything and I went to work and I did my job and I came home every night and I did the needlepoint in front of TV. I'm not drinking. I'm not going to drink. I'm not drinking tonight. I'm not drinking tonight. I'm not drinking tonight. I'm not drinking. I am not going to drink tonight. I did this for 30 days. You think I don't have willpower? Yikes. You know, and that's the interesting thing about alcoholism. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm doing that, but what am I doing? I'm thinking about drinking when I'm not drinking. You know, and that's what they talk about, the mental obsession. I have never had a problem with the second step in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Never. Because I can sit there and my insanity says this time it's going to be different. It took me 30 days and in 30 days you know what happened? I'm sitting there one night after those 30 days have passed and everything's going cool. And I said to myself, well, you know, I've been sober for 30 days. This time it'll be different. It was. If you know anything about alcoholism, it gets very different. It gets worse, in case you didn't know. So don't go back out there again. Anyway, so, <laughs> so I, uh, 
I, you know, it did get worse. And I started drinking. I had a vengeance for drinking. Now I didn't really care. I didn't care much about anything. I didn't care about you, and I didn't care about what happened to me, and I didn't care about anything because I figured nothing, absolutely nothing, is going to stand in my way of doing whatever I feel like doing from now on. I've always tried to follow the rules. I always tried to be a good girl. I always tried to, you know, grow up just like my mom and be a lady. What good has it done me? You know, and I gave up on myself. And that's the problem with women when we go through these things. We throw ourselves away. And if you threw yourself away, I want to hear you something. Once you hear something that I'm saying, we have 12 steps here. And two of them are four and five. And in four and five, you get free. You get free. You know, the steps are like an inside shower. You're the person that's going to get free. So I, uh, uh, we went around. It got even crazier after that. And, and my husband came home one day and said, you know, I bought a boat, and I thought, oh, good, for the lake. And he said, no, um, we're going to move to Acapulco and live on a yacht. And I thought, did I miss, like, six months of this marriage or something? And, uh, <laughs> which wouldn't have been surprising at that point. But, yeah, and then, he, I mean, he just spot these things up, and he would say, you know, and I've sold the house. Really? Where am I going to live now? You know? <laughs> but I didn't care because, you know what, at this point I didn't care anything about anything. I didn't care about what I did or who I did it with, and I didn't care when I did it. And what I would do is I'd go out and I'd go drinking with my friends, and I'd pick your boyfriend, your husband, or any other person that would say hello to me. And, uh, and I'd just sort of walk away with you, you know, and I just wanted somebody to drink with me. I wanted someone to drink with me and to play with me and to pay attention to me because my husband never did. He was too busy working. <laughs> I just love the way we ration things. <laughs> anyway, so there I am, and I'm doing all this crazy stuff, and I'm going everywhere, and I'm doing all whatever. I'm living. We had at that time we had a, a house in Florida and a house in Minnesota, and we had a jet to drive, go back and forth with. We had a couple of yachts, and I drove a Ferrari and a Porsche. I had everything in the world I've ever wanted, everything, everything. And this is a bad place to be if you're an alcoholic, because you know it's always that thing that says, you know, well, if I only had that, it would all be okay. I had that, and that, and that, and that, and that, and that. So, you know, I'm really grateful for that today because I know something that's coming back to give me a second chance of learning it, which is uh, if my life depends upon the, the car I drive or the watch I wear or anything else, I'm in big trouble. If my life depends upon anything you think of me, I'm in big trouble. You know? Um, the thing that brought me here was uh, I had uh, I had uh, been out working one night, and I got uh, was coming back from a job, and... Uh, drunk, ran through a red light and hit me. And I spent the next two years in hospitals. Um, pretty much destroyed my back and a lot of other parts of me. And uh, and so I uh, <clears throat> I just became a recluse. Um, I They gave me lots of drugs. I needed lots of drugs to get along with things. You know, and I'd go to my doctor and say, I can't sleep. And so he'd give me sleeping pills. And I'd say, I'm in so much pain, I can't stand it. He'd give me painkillers. And I said, I'm really depressed. And so he'd give me antidepressants. And, and, and then I said, you know what, my muscles are in constant stress. It gave me muscles relaxers. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because I was doing all that and drinking a quart of booze a day. I didn't move a lot. You know, and I became that recluse person you hear about, the one that's all by themselves, all alone. And that's who I was. Um, I'm sitting in this wonderful morass of self-pity, and... Uh, and I don't know what to do with myself anymore. I don't know what day it is, and I don't care what day it is. I'm very, very large. Um, I'm an attractive shade of yellow. And uh, I'm dying of the disease of alcoholism, and I don't know I'm an alcoholic. I don't know anything about the mental obsession. I don't know anything about the physical compulsion of alcoholism. I don't know I have an allergy to alcohol. All I know is that that stuff makes me feel okay. Please don't ever take it away. And I'm now in the position where my body's shutting down from alcohol, and I'm curling across my $40,000 Persian rug. <laughs> to go into the kitchen to shinny myself up in a cabinet 
so that I can drink and throw up and drink and throw up and drink and throw up and drink and throw up. And maybe the fifth or the sixth or the seventh one will stay down. I am now a chronic alcoholic, and I'm living on a skid row. It was a very fancy skid row, but it was skid row for me. And there was nothing left of cookie. I was gone. Um, all I wanted to do was to just die. That's all I wanted to do. I had been beaten into a state of reasonableness by alcoholism, and I didn't know I was an alcoholic. Uh, I was uh, <clears throat> loving this life. My husband was doing really crazy stuff, and it was just like a, it was like a circus, you know. And, and I've heard many people say that if you marry an alcoholic and you, and you live in an alcoholic marriage, you've got to dance of death. And that's what we had. It was a dance of death. And... Um, I decided I was finally going to kill myself. This time I was going to make it for sure. And uh, I had lots of good pills now. And I remember looking up, and it was a gray day. And it was uh, right about now. And I was looking out of the window, and I was looking up, and I, was, I said one thing. And I said, God, if there is a God. Now I'm going to tell you, it's been a long time since this cookie had talked to any kind of God. Because I didn't figure he wanted to have much to do with me with all the things that had happened to me. I had too much shame. And... Uh, I said, God, if there is a God, please, this time let me die. I don't want to do this anymore. Don't make me do this anymore, please. Now, I don't know what your third step sounded like, but I think that qualified me. It was interesting because I was going to take all those drugs and the doorbell rang. You know how annoying it is when somebody interrupts your perfectly good suicide plan? I mean, really. How rude. So I... Uh, <coughs> I can't believe I opened the door to this day, but you know, that's what I did. And, uh, and it was my father, and we do not have a drop-in family. We're a very formal group. And uh, he was like, my father's going to come over. He called and said he was going to come over. So here's my dad standing there. I said, Daddy, what are you doing here? And he said, Honey, I've come to take you home. I can't watch this anymore. And I said, Okay. And I left. And I left everything. The cars and the yachts and the planes and everything. I just left. Well, I took my makeup. <laughs> it's hard to cover up that much yellow. Anyway, so at this point I had no clothes because I'd been rubbing in this really lovely kind of horrible chenille bathrobe that was all had like had cigarette burns all down the front and dribbly stuff and, and it was all funny in the front because I kept crawling everywhere in it. And uh, I was really attractive, and, and I had decided a couple times to perm my own hair and color it so it was straight out like this and frizzed to death and black, you know, and uh, I was not looking pretty, okay, and I'm yellow, and <laughs> I just remember walking out the door, and it was quite a few years later, I remember what I said to myself, and, and uh, what I said to myself is one of us is going to survive this, and it's going to be me. I don't know when you made your decision or if you've made your decision yet. But I knew something right then. I knew it was never going to be the same, ever. That everything was going to change. My uh, parents, I came home to my parents and my mother had to lend me a dress because I didn't have anything to wear, so she found this lovely moo-moo. <laughs> I still think of this. And, and so we had to go see an old friend of theirs, and so I, I put on this moo-moo, and I tried to cover up as much of the yellow as I could. It's kind of hard to kind of get your eyeballs looking right, though. And so, you know, and I, I wasn't really good at putting my makeup on, so I didn't really put much on, but I kind of got it together. And we go out to this place, and it was a place where I'd grown up in, and 
their house and their home and these people and and I hadn't seen any of these people in years I'd become like I said a recluse and and so we came there and they said well make yourself a drink cookie my parents have never understood alcoholism I don't think they ever really will understand alcoholism it is not their job to understand alcoholism it's my job to understand them and so um, you know I uh, I made myself a drink you know one of those drinks we make ourselves you know those drinks you know glass rum <laughs> Fill glass, put in a ice cube. Ah, perfect. So I had now gotten to the point that I would throw up all the time before something would stay down. So I was kind of wondering whether this one was going to stay down or not. And uh, and it did, thank God. And I made myself another one. That one didn't feel like it. So I, uh, my parents said they were going to go home. And so I thanked the hostess for inviting me on short notice. It was very lovely to see her again. And I went out and I walked down the way to my parents' car. And I walked around my parents' car. And they were still talking to this Mrs. Jones. And so... Uh, I threw up in the bushes. Now, <clears throat> I had been raped. I have had a lot of stuff happen to me. This certainly wasn't the highlight of my drinking career, but it's the thing that got my attention. And I hope you always remember the one that gets your attention. Because the real strength in being us, and me sharing with you and you sharing with me, is when we remember who we are, so we never forget who we are. And uh, <clears throat> as we drove away, I said to myself, so this is the lady you've become, Cookie. You throw up in bushes. Hmm. And at that moment, I knew. I knew my problem was alcohol. I think the hand of that God that I had anything to do with for an awful lot of years came and took me away and said, it's okay, honey. And he started making things clear to me. And I knew from that moment on that I could never drink again. Now, that was not something I thought up on my own, trust me. And so I did that, and I... Uh, <clears throat> I remember I, uh, um, my parents had a friend that owned a treatment facility, so they sent me to the treatment facility. You know, it's nice having money. And, uh, and I went there, and the lady interviewed me. And the lady, one of the people that was a secretary there today, I still see in my Friday meeting, and she always looks at me and goes, you're such a miracle. <laughs> but it's wonderful to have friends for, you know, 22 years that have seen you come all the way. That's one of the gifts of sobriety. But, yeah, I... Uh, I went to treatment and I just, you know, I, they did this interview and I said, what do you feel like? And I said, I feel like I'm on the inside of a stainless steel drum that's got a cone at the bottom and I'm going around and around in a whirlpool and I'm going to slide down and I'm going to be dead. And he said, we have a chair for you. <laughs> but for me, you see, once I start drinking, I can't stop drinking. I never could and I didn't even want to. Didn't even want to. Never. I never went out and said, let's have two drinks. I was not of that variety. I was an alcoholic from the get-go, instant drunk. Um, I was, I got to explain this, let me tell you this one, my mother, who was just an adorable woman, and she's 83 years old now, and she's just a kick in the pants, and uh, I remember I was about 14 years sober, and every once in a while she'd say something like, was it because we made you skate too much when you were young, honey? Maybe you shouldn't have had to have those horses to ride, you always had to be doing something, maybe we shouldn't have done that for you. You sure it wasn't because we went up north every year? And I said, Mom, okay, let me do this one more time. Alcoholism is an equal opportunity disease. It doesn't care if you're rich or poor. Um, I was the lucky genetic winner of alcoholism in our family. And today I believe I am the lucky genetic winner in our family because I have a way of living that outshines anything else I've ever had. 
But I said to her, you know, it's a genetic disease, mother. It comes from the family. Once you have this, you can never get better. It's not something you just choose. It's sort of like having diabetes, you know. You didn't just go one day, oh, I think I'll eat a lot of sugar and have diabetes. You know, it's not that way. And so I kept explaining this to her, and I'd done it many, many times. And so this was another day where she looked at me, and she goes, okay, honey. So I came back, and I was sitting talking to her the next day. And she said, uh, I think I understand now. And I said, really, Mom? She said, it comes from your father's side of the family. <laughs> she was happy. <laughs> and she's just a wonderful woman. I'm living with her again now, and, and we have so much fun together. Anyway, so I... Uh, I went to this treatment facility. I remember I was supposed to walk into a door. They said there was an AA meeting in there. And I stood there for a moment. It looked like almost like the door was backlit. And I just looked at it. And all of a sudden, the thing in my head said, well, you, I, I thought to my, oh, I know. I thought to myself, if you walk through that door, you're admitting you're an alcoholic. And all of a sudden, the thing in my head said, well, get your ass in there. You are. <laughs> I don't know how your, doctor, your God talks to you, but mine's funny. And, uh, and that, that's a voice that stays with me today that I listen for and I follow. And, and I have tried to nurture it over the years. But it has given me a direction all the time. Most of it pretty lippy. Anyway, I, um, but it probably figures I can hear it that way. Anyway, so I go through this and I go through treatment. I don't remember anything of treatment. I had really done alcohol a little too long and pretty much fried my brains so I was coming out of treatment I, like I said I remember we had a woman counselor she was very nice and everywhere and pretty soon you know I decided I'd get gorgeous because that's the next thing to do of course and uh, and so I got decided to get gorgeous so I lost 100 pounds and uh, dieting has always been a um, hobby for me obviously it's not a vocation and so I uh, I lost this 100 pounds, and I had my face done, and, and I looked gorgeous, man. I was gorgeous. And, uh, and now all the men are around me, ha, 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 ha. And, uh, and, and now I say things to them like, well, it's so nice. Oh, you do want to go out with me. How kind. I, you didn't seem to want to go out with me a year ago. <laughs> if you didn't want to go out with me when I was fat, why would I want to go out with you when I'm thin? And, you know... <laughs> so, and I'm going through all this stuff, and, you know, and they had, the, they had uh, uh, all the... the, um, the Steps and the traditions on the wall, you know, you have that in meetings, you do have that here, right? You know, steps and traditions on the wall. And so I can read. I'm not stupid. So I'm reading them off the wall, and pretty soon I start writing them down, and I'm thinking, well, okay, powerless, yep, know that one already. Uh, <laughs> you know, can't stop me, I can't do it there. Insane, I, I'm insane, I'm insane. God, yeah, uh-huh, I believe there's a God. Why wouldn't I believe there's a God? I mean, I'm a woman. I've been under somebody's thumb most of my life. So, I mean, I was just nuts. And, and pretty soon I start sponsoring people. God knows what message I was carrying. But I was busy. And I'm going to meetings and I'm everywhere. And I'm about three and a half years sober and I'm starting to unravel. And, uh, and Roger's kind father got up one day. There was a speaker meeting. And he got up, Don, and he said, uh, he said, I don't feel like telling my story tonight. He said, I'm going to talk about the history of AA. And everybody kind of went, you know, we're all so eager. And, uh, and, and he got up and he started just talking about Sister Ignatian, Father Dowling, and Henrietta Cyberly. And I'm thinking, who the heck are all these people? You know, and I had prided myself on knowing everybody in AA at that point. <laughs> just a little ego problem. And, uh, and so, so, you know, um, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, Cookie, you call yourself a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't even know what you're a member of. You're a hypocrite. It's a bad thing to be in cookie land. 
hypocrites of bad thing in cookie land. So, you know, I, uh, I went home and, and I thought, you know, I'm three and a half years sober. I'm gorgeous. I've done everything to fix myself. Uh, obviously, it's not working. I might as well kill myself. I'm three and a half years sober, sitting in the middle of four meetings a week, dying of the illness of alcoholism. Dying of the illness of alcoholism because nobody's telling me what alcoholism really is. Nobody's giving me a solution that works. We're just all talking about topics, you know? And once in a while, somebody would mention the third step, and, but there was no, like, go through the book. There was nothing going on that I saw at that time. And um, I'm sitting thinking about this. I'm thinking I don't want to shoot myself. I don't want to leave that kind of a mess for anybody. Um, I can't take pills because then I blow my sobriety. <laughs> and then uh, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll start the car, and then I can put on all my makeup, you see my order of importance here. And, uh, and then I could just sit in the car and I'll go to sleep and I'll die. And then I thought about that for a while. I thought, well, if my car runs that long, I'm going to end up killing my dog. And I just couldn't, couldn't stand it if I killed my dog. So and during the middle of this wonderful musing, I had a little rule for myself. And that was to, whenever you got really, really crazy, which I did frequently, I had a lot of anxiety attacks when I was first sober. And, uh, and you read something until you calm down. Well, you see, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very good on looks and I have a copy of the big book it's on the table so you'll know i'm a member of aa and then i have the grapevine y'all know what the grapevine is our meeting in print and i have those fanned out over here so you'll know i'm a member of aa <laughs> i didn't read them and uh and I, you know i got everything again all the accoutrement of looking like a member of alcoholics anonymous and i'm not a member i don't even know what aa really is and so all of a sudden something ran from i'm reading this book and i'm reading I'm, and i'm thinking i gotta do something i gotta do something so i pick up an issue of this grapevine who knew? And, and after reading my self-help book. And, uh, and I picked up issue of the grapevine, and I just went, I just picked it up, and I opened it like this, and I said, suicide in sobriety. I went, not funny. <laughs> and then there was a reprint of a reprint of an article that said, there will come a time in your sobriety when there's a piece of your ego dying off because it is no longer necessary, and it's trying to take you with it. Hmm. Took me a number of years to be able to label that after a lot of work. But when I finally did label it, I called it Cookie the Star. You see, I'd been a star in riding and skating and all these things I'd ever done in my life because I was a super achiever. And so when I came into A and I sobered up, I was going to be an AA star. Any of you tried that? Just do everything everybody tells you to do and it'll be all fine. And see, my whole value, my whole sense of worth came from you telling me I'm okay. Everything came from that. So I went and did everything everybody said in AA so that you would say I was okay so that I would feel whole. And I paid, I, I ran myself ragged trying to make all you happy, you know. Like I said, I was everywhere. I did everything. I volunteered for every position. I did everything you're supposed to do, I thought. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about that. And all of a sudden this thought goes through my head. You better read the big book like your life depends on it because it does. That's weird. So I looked down at this book I've never opened, and I pick it up, and it says, We have Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered, not recovering, recovered, from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. I thought, well, that's what it's for. <laughs> I'm 
sorry, I'm slow. And so, uh, so I picked, and I just started reading it. And when it said pray, I, I prayed. When it said write, I wrote. And that's what I did, man. I followed the directions exactly. And, you know, I, I read where it said, you know, nothing in so much ensures immunity is intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when all other measures fail. And so I'm, now, I'm out there and I'm starting to collect sponsees, you know, and I'm getting them. I'm saying, hi, you really do want to read the book book with me, don't you? I think you really love the big book. It's really going to be fun. I have one right here about that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, uh, that's what I did, and I was I was on fire, you know. And I wrote out this four step like it says in the big book, and I wrote out all those columns, and I couldn't think of anybody I resented. Honest to God, couldn't. At that time, Charlie and Joe came through, and I went up to Joe and I said, Joe, I think I'm not going to make it in this program. And he said, How long have you been sober? And I said, Three and a half years. And he kind of went, <laughs> Okay, and uh, and I said, But I can't think of anybody I resent. And he said, Put yourself on the head of the resentment list. And that's what I did, and that's where I started. And I put myself in the head of the resentment list because I just hated me. I didn't just not like me. I hated me. And, uh, and how that, that worked out for me is I never had a resentment because I was so self-centered, I didn't even bother resenting you. I could just hate myself and have all the fun. And if I hadn't had that key, and so many keys as we go along, people give us keys, you know, keys to our sobriety, new tools, whatever we need. And if I hadn't had that key, I don't know where I'd be today. But that's where I started, and I did that, and I read this to my sponsor. She had no idea what I was doing. She said, that's nice, dear. I'm glad you've been busy. And I adored her, but she wasn't a big book person. And so now I'm collecting all these girls, and we're all going everywhere together, and I take the first two rows of every single meeting, and we all go sit in line. And it's me and all the girls, and, and, we, and we, we're big book people. We do a big book. We all do it together. It's, it's, we're, like a, we're like a cadre of rabid big book women and, uh, and so uh, so you know it was really funny because um, I shared with the girls that I had waited a year and a half before I had any relationships in AA and well that's because the old timers said two years and the newer people said one year so I split the difference and so and so I'm doing all this and, I'm, and so I'm suggesting this to my girls well now I happen to sponsor all the most beautiful girls in AA so pretty soon I'm getting men who hate me because they can't touch my AA women until they've got a year and a half so I didn't impose this rule. It just happened because I tell people, you know, that's what I did. You can choose to do what you want to do. And so now I'm getting people coming up to me telling me how much they resent me. And I always figure that's good because they got to pray for me. And, uh, and so, so then I'm and all these places I'm going priest and I hear this thing for the jungle drums. They say, oh, yeah, Cookie's got all the sponsors. Who the hell does she think she is? You know, Cookie and her crumbs. <laughs> So, of course, my girls being my girls, they all came in going, I'm Cookie's Crumb. <laughs> but anyway, we, were, we just, it was a wonderful and exciting time. It was an exciting time. You know, we're doing our work together. We're making amends. We're doing all that stuff, you know. And, and I, when I wrote out my fifth step and, and when I looked at my character defects the first time, I, I didn't know much about it. But this time it's starting to eat on me. Now I'm seven, eight years sober and it's starting to eat me up a little bit, you know. I'm doing all this fun stuff and I've gone as far as I could go alone, truthfully. Um, I'm having these girls go through the book with me. They're getting, they're going along. They're doing well. And all of a sudden, I start kind of unraveling again. And I unravel enough that I do some things that are very embarrassing for me in sobriety. And, uh, and the, you know, it's acting out behavior. And, and I ended up uh, with uh, fooling around with a guy I shouldn't have been fooling around with. And uh, it was very embarrassing. It was very embarrassing for me. Um, I think there's a lot of surrenders in sobriety. I think we go through a lot of them. And... Uh, and I, I think our first big surrender is coming in, and then we start to we start to peel away all like they talk about the layers of the onion. We start to peel things away. And we start to become the people we're supposed to become, the people that God wants us to be. And in that process, is amazingly painful at times. 
And so what I realized at that time was that I just couldn't go on doing this by myself alone. And I was asking God, and I'd kind of gotten away from really asking God much. You know how that works. And, you know, you get busy. <laughs> I'm too busy to pray. That'll work well, Cookie. And uh, anyway, so I asked God, I said, I don't know what to do anymore. And uh, the ego had reasserted itself, as it will do. And uh, I'm sitting in my meeting one day, and in comes this lady. Never seen her before. And she sits down, and she ends up being in my group, and she sits down, and she has her big book with her, and I thought, Shazam. I had been bringing my big book into meetings, and they said things to me like, are you going to read out of that GD book again? You know, so I've always been a people pleaser, so I just started memorizing paragraphs. <laughs> I'm naughty. And, uh, and so I would just say paragraphs when I was in meetings. And... She came in and she knew all about the book. She had 10 more, 10 more years of sobriety almost than I did. And that woman saved my life. And I'm always hoping that for any of you that don't know that there's a big book and there is a way out and that you don't ever have to drink again, that there is someone that can help you and that you can get through this and you're never alone. You're never alone no matter what. You can choose to be alone, but you're never alone. You can choose to use again, but you're never going to have to if you don't want to because there's enough of us that care enough that will carry the message and help you. I was, uh, it's almost like a rebirth, you know, in a sense, and, and we went and we did a lot of stuff together. I went through the whole book again with her, and, and I had a whole new reawakening and, and uh, a whole new purpose for my life. And I was just, it was fabulous. I was doing well. Everything was going well. My business was well. And I had been asking God, you know, I don't know what to do. Uh, I do have a lot of things wrong with my body. I was getting older. I knew I couldn't keep working the way I was working. And so uh, I asked God to give me some kind of a sign for what I needed to do. And, and, uh, and you know how that works. Um, I had, uh, I was tired of being alone. And uh, so I, a friend of the family's had uh, been in AA for a long time. And he, uh, he ended up being a speaker at one of the meetings I was at. He gave the worst AA talk I've ever heard in my life. And, and all my friends are looking at him going, huh? And anyway, so I went to talk to him afterwards, and I said, well, gee, where did you, where did you learn that the 12 steps were developed by a minister in Florida? And... <laughs> opinion on that. Anyway, uh, we had shown horses together for, uh, 40 years ago, and I had known his family. He'd known my family. He was an older gentleman. Um, I knew that I needed some financial security, and I was real tired of being alone, and I made a lot of compromises and ended up marrying him. And that was very interesting. Uh, shortly before I married him, I was out rollerblading one day. I turned 50, and I was out rollerblading one day, and um, I didn't see this car coming, and she hit me. And I spent the, I broke both shoulders and three ribs, and that was the start of a wonderful journey that I've had in the last couple of years. My father got cancer. I adore my father. He's always been my hero. And my father got cancer, and he, uh, he got to die one day at a time while I watched him for a year. And this is, I'm the little girl that would run away from everything. I'm the one that, want, if there was an emotion anywhere, I'd be somewhere else. If there was any kind of responsibility that really had to do with anything because it was emotional, I'd be somewhere else. And I'm the one suiting up and showing up. And I'm doing that because you taught me how to be a person who suits up and shows up. And I'm adoring my father, and I'm watching him shrivel away. And I looked at him one day, and I said, Daddy, I always wanted to ask you this. I said, why did you come on that day when, when so long ago... Um, and he said that was the day that, you know, he came to the door on my suicide attempt. 
And he said, I don't know, honey. Uh, I was reading the Bible this morning. My father's a very spiritual man. He wasn't very religious. Um, but he was spiritual. And he said, I was reading the Bible that morning, and I knew if I didn't go get you right then, I'd never see you again. You know, so I, my, I owe my father my life twice. Um, two and a half years ago, um, I was going out to New York to do a talk, and, and I was sitting on the plane. I was going like this, and I felt a little lump right here. And um, I got in to see one of my sponsees, Ava, and, and she looked at it, and she went crazy. <laughs> and she said, you got to call your doctor. you got to call your doctor. And so, uh, and she made me call right then. She's a little over-demanding at times. Anyway, I wouldn't have seen him because I've been through so many doctors with my back over the years. I didn't want to see anybody. But I called my doctor, and, uh, and she, uh, she saved my life. Um, I went to the doctor, and I found out that I had stage 4 squamous cell carcinoma of the left tonsil. Um, I went to Mayo on a Friday they said I had to come in Monday for my surgery. I had a 50-50 chance of surviving the surgery. And if I survived the surgery, I had a 50% chance of ever being able to speak again, turn my head, or lift my left arm. So I went home to get my, my things in order. Uh, I went down there with, my, uh, with an Al-Anon with an Al sponsor, or an Al-Anon sister sponsor, whatever. Um, and we both had the same sponsor. And she took me down to Mayo because she was familiar with Mayo. And she also was somebody that walked me through, walked me through this time all my life. I want to know what you're a part of. I want you to know what you're a part of. And maybe you don't know some of this because maybe these things haven't happened to you, but things have happened to me that have been incredibly bad for the last five years. And uh, they've been embarrassing and heartbreaking and everything you can think of. Um, during this time that I was having this, my husband decided he wanted to get a divorce. It was very public and it was very embarrassing for me. And uh, it was a very large betrayal and it was very hard. Um, and I'm asking God, what? What am I supposed to be doing here, God? What am I not doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And I don't believe at any one of these times that it was God's idea that I should have to go through things bad. I think life happens. I think life happens, and I think God gives us the ability to handle those things with the friends that we have. So I, uh, I went and uh, <clears throat> I went for the surgery. I came back uh, Friday, told my mom where everything was. <laughs> And, uh, and I looked at uh, my sister, Alan Sponsi, and I said, uh, I want to go to the meeting. Because alcoholics go to meetings, and I'm an alcoholic. And I called one of my sponsees, and I said, if you can be there and you can show up and not cry and not fall apart in front of me, I want you to be there. If you can't, please don't come, because I can't handle your emotions and mine, too. And so I'm walking this way alone, and, uh, and, but I'm not alone, am I? And I sat there in the meeting, and my friends, Keith, other people were there, and, you know, uh, my Al-Anon sponsor and her husband, Bob B., and, and Linda. And these are people that I love, and I've known my whole sobriety. And, uh, and I don't remember anything anybody said, but I remembered one thing, that they loved me. You know, so I went in for that surgery the next uh, Monday morning. And uh, now, that night before I said a prayer, and, and I don't know what you know about yourself, but sometimes we learn things about ourselves. And it's very, very difficult. And uh, I had, uh, we'd gone out for dinner and they had wine. Yeah, isn't that just about typical? You know, I go out to dinner with two Elanons. They have wine. It's the last night of mine on earth, maybe. And they're drinking. <laughs> what? What? I think it was a ha-ha. Anyway, so, uh, so, yeah, they're drinking and getting silly. They're not drunks, you know, and I'm looking at them and going, you're getting silly. Am I going to have to drive back to the hotel? And it was, it was very funny. 
And then they wanted to know if I wanted to watch TV with them while they're both giggling. And I said, no, I think I'll pass. <laughs> and, uh, and I went and I sat down and I decided to say my prayers. And, and you know, it was funny because I didn't know I was going to pray this. And I learned a lot about you and about me. And uh, I said, God, you know, I came in here uh, at that time. It was 18 years ago. And I said, I came in on a suicide attempt. So this life has really been your life. And this has been your gift. And hopefully I've been able to give some of it back. Hopefully I've been able to love some of your kids and carry your message and tell other people they don't ever have to live the way they used to live. And there is a way out. And if you want me to come home, I've lived my whole life in sobriety and pain. And if you want me to come home, I'm ready to come home. And if you don't, I'll stay and love some more of your kids and carry your message. I went in for surgery the next morning. Um, and I came out seven and a half hours later. And everybody was in the room. There's a whole lot of people in the room. And they were all waiting to see if I could talk because the doctor didn't know if I could talk either. They didn't know how much was left. And they took out most of my neck and jugular vein and the whole back of my throat and um, like that. So uh, I looked up. And when I looked up, you know, I called myself Cookie the Star. That was the piece of ego that had, had, uh, had died off at that one time. And I opened my eyes and I looked across the way. And there was a building with a gigantic star on it. And I knew, and I just knew, you know, and I said, star, and they went, she can talk, and they all left. <laughs> but I want to tell you what you're a part of. Um, I went home after that. I had to go through horrendous um, radiation. It was very bad. And, uh, and I, had, I had people that loved me so much that they put together an entire color-coded program of who was going to come and pick me up, who was going to be with me 24 hours a day for the next three months because they knew how bad it was going to be. I had somebody all the time with me. And it was really strange because I was so very sick when I first got done. And, and I couldn't eat anything and I couldn't swallow anything. And it was really scary. And I caught, thought I was going to choke to death all the time. And it was, it was not fun. Anyway, so I, I was sleeping and they gave me lots of things. So I sleep and, and every once in a while I'd open my eyes and there'd be this cheerful face of someone who's like, Hi, my name's Chelsea and I'm your great, great, great grandsponsy. And it's an honor to be here with you. Hi, Chelsea. But that's what you did. You loved me back to health. And that's what we're a part of. We're a fellowship. We're people that care about each other. And the funny thing is that the people that showed up to care about me, if I would have told you who I thought the top 20 people would be, none of those were the ones that turned up. There were people I heard that heard me speak one time or that, that I was did a workshop for them or whatever. And one guy showed up and, and he stayed with me every Tuesday night because he'd had cancer before and I'd lined him up with somebody to take him through the big book. You know, and that's what happens. That's what happens here. You know, we love each other, you know, and I'm the luckiest woman in the world. I am the luckiest woman in the world because I get to come here and love you for a while, you know, and you're, you're, you're very kind to listen to me and you're very kind to be part of my world, you know, and I'm honored to be here at your 60th anniversary. I am honored. I can't begin to tell you. So I will close with um, my favorite prayer. Um, it's one from uh, Merton. And it says, I have no idea where I am going. I do not know the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will all end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following a will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you 
always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. For you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. God bless you and thank you for my life.